Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast, Letters from Lifers. I am your host, Emily Hudak. We are going to read another letter and talk about another inmate, whether or not we believe that this person should be sentenced to life without parole. Most of the people you're going to hear stories about are convicted murderers. Some you may be able to watch episodes on, on your favorite true crime show, or you've heard a podcast about the horribly bad things they've done. But does that make them bad people? I'll let you decide. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. As you heard, my name is Emily and I am the host. Today's episode is on inmate Jamie Mead, MDOC number 232516. As some of you know, when you're in prison, you're known by your number and not your name, which is disgusting. Jamie is currently in the Macomb Correctional Facility. This facility is a level two, which is considered low security. Jamie is Caucasian, has red hair, blue eyes, five foot nine, 215 pounds, date of birth, 8-14-73, and Jamie was 19 at the time of his offense. If you're quick with math, you would know that Jamie will be 49 years old this year. I have been so eager to cover Jamie's story and bring it to life. Now, if you're able to, I strongly suggest looping back and listening to the episode on ACEs. The episode on ACEs is where I go over all of the questions and what has been proven by the study done by Kaiser Permanente, how many yeses and nos reflect and correlate to incarceration and mental and health problems. So if you Google Jamie's name, you will find at least one other podcast that I know of, blogs, stories, all kinds of things about his conviction and the people who support him. And let me tell you, Jamie has an auditorium of people that support his release. And I hope that by the end of this episode, you will agree. And maybe we can all work together to help Jamie actually walk out of prison. Now, all of my podcasts are not going to be about getting someone out. We are just going to share stories about people's lives in prison. Some of them definitely deserve to be there. Some, like Jamie, I can honestly say don't deserve to be there. So let's get into Jamie's story and get to know him. So Jamie's crime is really interesting. He was convicted of aiding and abetting. And if you don't know what that is, it just basically means that Jamie was in the wrong place at the wrong time with people that he shouldn't have been. Under Michigan's DOC website, it shows that Jamie was convicted of murder in the first. And it doesn't necessarily say aiding and abetting unless you get into the technical of the case. And this is really important because later when I explain to you the co-defendant's charges, it'll make more sense. Jamie did not possess a weapon, let alone pull the trigger. Jamie was there and he shouldn't have been. He was 19. Now, when I tell you about the actual murder in this case, 
you will probably have as much surprise as I did. Jamie was sent to prison in 1993. On the 30th year of his incarceration, he will be 50, which would be 2023. Jamie grew up in River Rouge, Michigan, a small city on the outskirts of Detroit. According to the 2020 census, River Rouge has just over 7,000 people in population and is only about three miles. Compared to Detroit, that's pretty small. I did a lot of Googling and reading this week on River Rouge and Detroit and statistics. Now, River Rouge is surrounded by major industries, most notably the epicenter of the global automotive industry, an industry that has basically faded to dust, leaving Detroit an area of urban decay. During the late 70s and 80s, River Rouge was in the top three most polluted cities in the country. According to Wikipedia, Detroit was at or near the top of unemployment, poverty, per capita, and infant mortality throughout the 80s. Toward the mid to late 80s, Jamie was in his teens. So Jamie grew up in capsule in the unemployment poverty. Jamie doesn't remember moving too much, only being able to recall maybe four times. So he was pretty rooted in Michigan. Now to talk about ACEs, please, 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 if you haven't listened, go listen to that episode or just Google ACEs questionnaire. You can read all about it. So Jamie has an ACEs score of 10. The maximum you can get is 10. And when you have 10, your chances of incarceration and substance abuse and physical health problems skyrockets. I mean, when you get to three or four yeses on your ACEs score, your chances of those things go up tremendously. But with a 10, I mean, it's it's almost guaranteed. So the crazy thing to me is that the maximum you can get is 10 And yet Jamie says that his childhood was good. Now, again, please go read the questions because when you read the questions and you see that Jamie answered yes to all of them, but also says that his childhood was good, it'll make you wonder if he thought it was good because he didn't know anything different or he had a really good mom who showed him love. Now, Jamie had a pretty typical childhood, played hockey which his mom was always a part of, even though it took a lot out of her. Jamie's dad was notably absent and having divorced from his mother when Jamie was very young. Eventually, his mother remarried and he lived with her and his new stepfather and younger sister. Jamie's family did not sit around the table and have dinner together. And I'm chuckling because this is really one of my favorite questions to ask. I would love someone to do a broad range survey and find out if there's any correlation between committing crimes and drugs and gangs and all that and eating dinner with your family at the end of the day. I don't know. I just, I feel like there's some kind of correlation. Now, even myself and my family didn't eat dinner at the table growing up. But I just wonder if there's some kind of connection between the two. Dinner was prepared and eaten whenever anyone came or went from their daily responsibilities. But Jamie says that dinner was always prepared. Jamie remembers going to church occasionally, but pointed out that it wasn't ever mandatory. And they had family trips down south and would go to theme parks like Cedar Point. 
So if you were to just read that paragraph, you would assume that Jamie had a pretty good life growing up. So Jamie did not encounter child protective services growing up. A lot of my pen pals that are in for life without parole have encountered CPS or foster homes. I mean, technically, if you're in a foster home, you're part of CPS. Anyway, Jamie did not encounter that, which to me was pretty um, surprising considering his ACEs score. So looping back to Jamie's conviction, like I said, it's for aiding and abetting felony murder committed in 1993. Someone died and Jamie was there. His sentence, life without the possibility of parole. According to Jamie and witnesses, he did not possess a weapon, nor did he intend to kill. Jamie's co-defendant, who did pull the trigger, was found guilty of a lesser charge and was only sentenced to around 12 years in prison and has long been released. Not only has he been released for a very long time, this individual is now deceased. The co-defendant in the case, Brian Barkley, was convicted of tension to cause bodily harm less than murder, except he did murder someone. And when you shoot someone, to me, that would be intent to kill, right? But I mean, who am I to say if you shoot someone that's not intending or or intending to kill them. But how can Jamie be convicted of murder if the person that actually pulled the trigger wasn't even charged with murder? It's it's confusing and mind-blowing and it throws your brain into a tailspin when you read the court documents in the story. After being released from this crime, Mr. Barkley did have other sentences, including domestic violence, weapons, and charges dealing with drugs. Now, I feel like the weapons thing he should have learned from the first time and counted his lucky stars when he was only given 12 years. So we look at Brian Barkley's life and sentence and he was able to get out and is now deceased. And then we look at Jamie, who was 19 at the time and was associated with these people and is almost 50 and still in prison. It's hard to find crime articles from back before the internet really got going, but the bottom line is that Jamie was with Brian and Brian fired a weapon killing someone. Brian was given a plea deal and Jamie was not. Science is always changing and developing. And back in the 90s, if you were 18, you were an adult, period. You knew right from wrong and you were expected to be an upstanding citizen. But science has now proven that the human brain is not fully matured of around 25. According to National Institute of Health, NIH, and many other scholarly articles and studies, before your brain is done developing... There are behaviors that are largely seen across all cultures, and those are one, increased novelty seeking, two, increased risk taking, and three, social affiliation shift towards peer-based interactions. All of these are somewhat set into play so that you can break off from family. And as this study mentioned, 
lessen the chance of inbreeding. So Jamie was 19. And in 93, this would have been old enough to not partake in such a thing. However, according to research, Jamie still had a good five years of development to go. And when you add in his childhood experiences and trauma, you're further lowering his cognitive abilities at the age of 19. Who am I to say that he did not show development or maturity at this age because I didn't know him. I can't really say that we can blame his age and development on association and a crime like this. But I do think that giving someone who is not fully developed neurologically a prison sentence of life without the possibility of parole is wrong. And I'm just a single person in California who supports this man. But as you'll hear, there are many who support Jamie, including the same person who sentenced him to life without parole. We're going to get into Jamie's letter and I kind of broke it up and rewrote it so that I can read it more of a story. But these are all Jamie's experiences and answers to my questions. How do you process time when you've been sentenced to life without parole. Jamie sees time as a comparison. He compares the time in his life to the time he probably has left to live. And he finds time relevant in his sentence. His hope is to be released from prison before he's too old to even live a life outside of prison. Noting that if he doesn't, staying in prison and dying there is probably better. Basically, what Jamie is saying is that he wants to be able to get out and affiliated with life and the cultures because he's going to face major culture shock when he gets out. I think anyone after 30 years in prison would. Jamie wrote that he matured and has grown into an adult in prison and was an underdeveloped adolescent when he went into prison. He says, I've grown and educated myself into a potentially successful adult. I think potentially is a word that can be taken from his answer because he is successful. And in a minute, I'm going to share all of those successes with you. And I can guarantee that you're going to agree that he's a successful adult. When it comes to support in prison, fortunately, Jamie has his mom and sister for the emotional side of that support, but also he has a desire to care for them and support them. Hope and desire keep Jamie moving forward and he wants more in life and seeks out ways of getting more in life. Jamie has mentors, friends, colleagues, and others who support him as well, including the United Church of Christ. As most inmates will tell you, finding emotional support is a little difficult in prison. Ultimately, you learn to cope with emotions. And in prison, you learn how to deal with life overall, whether you want to or not. A lot of inmates will tell you that you do not make friends in prison. Everyone has an ulterior motive and it's just not wise to become very close with someone. So throughout Jamie's incarceration, he's picked up different hobbies, including leather craft, ceramics, woodworking and painting, but he enjoys reading and learning. Some of his favorite books are nonfiction. His spiritual life has grown greatly since incarceration, and this is definitely not unheard of and is rather a norm from my experience of talking to pen pals. Inmates turning to faith and religion to walk with them throughout a life in a cell is pretty commonplace. 
and there are phases that long-term prisoners go through seeking spiritual guidance. But in the end, Jamie is a Christian and Jesus Christ is his savior and mentor. So what has Jamie accomplished in prison? And if Jamie were to sit in front of a parole board, they would ask him these questions. What have you done? Besides making mugs or painting pictures, what have you done? How do we know that you would go out into the world and be a successful part of society? Most inmates would not be able to share much more than maybe an amazing artistic ability. But Jamie, he really has mastered the art of making prison his little bitch. He has completed several certificates and training in paralegal, training in alternative dispute resolution and victim advocacy. P.S. A lot of us could use that kind of training. He's completed three vocational programs and over 50 rehabilitative programs. Full stop. That right there is pretty impressive, okay? If someone told me that they had done over 50 rehabilitative programs, I would be impressed. But Jamie... Jamie has earned a bachelor's degree in interdisciplinary studies with concentrations in criminal justice and legal studies. But Jamie, right now he is pursuing a dual degree from the Chicago Theological Seminary. For those unfamiliar, that's a master of divinity in social work or social services administration. Yes, you heard that right. Jamie is right now currently pursuing a master's degree in prison. But Jamie, he's done more than me and probably a lot of us while in prison. His heart won't let him sit and take it. And so many inmates have hope. And I feel like hope is really what keeps anyone going. It's astonishing to me, but Jamie has hope and faith and vision. And I do believe that Jamie will soon walk out of prison and I believe he will make a huge positive impact in our world. So what about regrets? What regrets does Jamie have? Do people that murdered or witnessed murder have regrets or sorrow? Jamie does. And one of his biggest regrets is hurting people, the victim, the Vic's family, and of course his own family. Another big regret that Jamie shares is letting his God down. So I asked my pen pals if they could go back to the day of the crime, would they? And if they would, what would they do differently? Jamie shared that he would change his walk with the Lord and would have a better developed relationship with God. His hope is that if he had done this, his teenage years would have walked an entirely different path. Jamie would absolutely return to the day of the crime, but instead of saying anything, he says that he would just knock his ass out with a huge rock so that he couldn't make such a horrific decision that led to where he is today. Like I mentioned earlier in the episode, this is the part where I just, I get goosebumps and I get like all warm and fuzzy about this because you don't hear this often. So like I said earlier, Jamie's sentencing judge is one of his biggest supporters who actively advocates for him and for his release. Now, I don't know anyone that is in prison for life without parole that can say that. 
If you have someone that you know that can say that their sentencing judge supports their release, you call me and you tell me because I'd like to talk to them too. Anyway, she has written letters to the parole board and others claiming that if she was able to, she would have mirrored the gunman's sentence and only handed down 12 years to Jamie. A lot of times, based on the charge, there are legalities around sentencing, minimums, maximums, and when you are convicted of murder first degree, pretty much it's life in any state you visit or go to. Jamie sent me actual copies of the judge's support, and I was really touched by what she had to say. So on top of the judge in this case... Jamie has, like I've said, so many rallying around him for his release. And these include state senators, state representatives, professors, pastors, community leaders, and advocates. These are all people that are rooting for and supporting a convicted murderer who, P.S., didn't murder anyone physically. But these people have taken note and they see him. They're holding space for Jamie, and that's really big. Nobody in the state of Michigan is sentenced the way Jamie is in comparison to the principal defendant. No one in Michigan has the support of their judge. Like I said, if you know someone that does, you call me. Very, 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 very few inmates have accomplished as much as Jamie has while being incarcerated. On top of the degrees and immense amount of learning that Jamie has done, he's also the editor for the Michigan Lifers Report newsletter. He sent me a copy of this and I was really impressed with the layout and the information. It was very cleanly written and organized. And overall, it was just a really great forum for them. Uh, Well-written, well-designed, well-laid-out. So yeah, that's Jamie. And if you are interested in helping Jamie or just becoming a pen pal of Jamie's, you can easily Google his name and find him and get all of his information. He does use JPay, so you can go into JPay, download and put in Jamie's um, MDOC number and his name, and you can connect with him. You will have to buy stamps in order to send Jamie uh, emails. Otherwise, you can send good old snail mail. And again, you can find his address online. He is actively looking for pen pals and friends. And if anyone out there hears this and feels the need to help Jamie get out of prison, then I'm sure that he would gladly accept that as well. And that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will come back and join me for the next episode. Thanks, everyone. Bye.